Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been going through this book as a church, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 4. So what we're going to do is, uh, in just a second, I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to finish by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and then you'll reply back, thanks be to God. And I'm not, not comparing, but early service, they didn't do so hot, so <laughs> just, you got to outshine them, Okay. Let's read God's word. We're going to do that, and then I'm going to pray. Hear God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he held a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gift of your word. God, if we ignore your word, we are just left with our own thoughts echoing around in our head, and that is a lonely place to be. So Father, I pray that this morning your word would be proclaimed, that we would look to it for hope, for help, so that we would build up this body. Lord, you've given us this amazing task Uh, to live out the implications of the gospel together. And I pray that you would help us to do that. Pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be receptive and that we would turn where we need to turn and just 
head toward our Savior. Pray that we do all this by grace. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You need others in order to flourish. If you want to know what it means to be alive, you need other people in your life. And I want you to think about that the next time you're sitting in traffic. So uh, America has a traffic problem. Uh, So uh, just, I mean, think about just like last time you were in like a, a big U.S. city, just bumper to bumper congestion. Nobody's moving anywhere. It takes a long time just to get a couple of miles. If you've ever found yourself in that situation, by and large, you have one person to thank for that. There, is, there are lots of reasons for traffic in this country, but one person built an infrastructure that made this all possible. You've never heard of him. His name is Robert Moses. Robert Moses has been called by historians the master builder of the 20, 20th century. Uh, he was never elected to public office, but at one time he held 12 offices in New York City simultaneously. Uh, and the, the diversity of his office gave him total autonomy from the public and from elected officials. He could do whatever he want. And so what did he do? He built New York. He totally transformed it from what it was to what it is today. But as his biographer points out, yes, he did build New York, but he built it as a monument for himself. Um, So uh, if you think about, uh, his biographer describes the situation when he first met Robert Moses, when he came to his house. And Robert Moses lived uh, just off of Jones Beach, and um, at the corner of his house, there were these two walls. And uh, Moses had torn down those two walls and replaced them with these giant picture windows. And so when his biographer came in to do the interview... Uh, if you, he said, if you looked out the left picture window, you could see Robert Moses Tower uh, just standing there over Robert Moses Beach. And then if you looked out the right window, you could see the Robert Moses Causeway. And then standing in between those two pictures was Robert Moses himself, just staring at the biographer. Think about that for a second. He did not use any of his own money to build the Robert Moses Causeway or tower. Like he used public funds and he built the city of New York into a monument for himself. And look, I mean, he did a ton of good things. So like uh, by the time he left office, there were over, New York State had over two million acres of parks. Um, he built the Lincoln Center. He brought the UN to New York. Um, he built 658 playgrounds in the city. He made it a very family uh, safe place to, to live. So many, many of you, if you're parents in here, you've actually probably... Uh, experience the direct result of Robert Moses' work. Uh, if you've ever had the pleasure of changing a diaper in public, um, you've probably had to use one of those changing stations where it's in the wall and it just comes out. That was his idea. Um, he also built 13 bridges, 416 miles of parkways. Uh, the guy really did get a lot done. However, though, as many people pointed out, Robert Moses didn't care about people. He sold himself as a public servant, but many people pointed out the guy liked cars more than he liked people, and he didn't even drive. Uh, So Robert Moses totally, he displaced hundreds and thousands of New Yorkers to make these roads uh, that were named after him or that were uh, helping people in power and helping him get more power that made absolutely no sense. And Robert Moses built all these things and got all this done in the height of the Great Depression. 
And so all of a sudden he became a model for other U.S. cities. They just started copying him like in Louisville and Kansas City and Los Angeles. And so all of a sudden this blueprint was applied everywhere and it wasn't really a great blueprint. And I mean, he displaced hundreds of thousands of people, like so, and rich and poor, he didn't care. So uh, he knew that uh, if they could build a, a state park on a beach, they would get a ton of public support. Think about it, New York's hot in the summer, there's not really anywhere to go. So he heads to this beach, and um, he, he found all these obscure laws, and he said, hey, to the millionaires living on the beach, hey, like I'm with the parks department, I'd love to buy your house and transform it into a beach for uh, New Yorkers to just come and just have a place to go. And they'd be like, no way. This is our haven from the city. We love this. Like, you get out of here. At which point Moses would condemn the house, take it from them, uh, and then they would sue. It would get held up in court, and then he would just start building a park. And you're like, you're wondering, how is that legal? It's not. Um, and he found all these loopholes, and then he became a public hero because of how it was spun in the paper was, oh, here is this public servant. He's, he's, bringing a, a, he's trying to help New Yorkers, give him a place to go. But really, he was just serving himself. So he, he was a bully, and actually, uh, after his biography was written, uh, it was widely circulated among politicians all around the world. People were like, how do we do this? He, he built this monument to himself, and it had all kinds of negative consequences. He managed to chase not one, but two baseball teams out of New York. This guy just lived for himself. He built a monument, and he didn't care who was impacted by it. Today, we're talking about building, we're talking about building up the church. And what Paul wants to help you see today is you have two options, really, when it comes to building up the church. Uh, we, ha- we have this amazing, like the raw materials Jesus have, has given us through the gospel are amazing. Like we have been given just grace upon grace and been equipped to do amazing things. And you can either use that giftedness to build a monument for yourself or you can use that giftedness to build up a body. Paul's saying this, like, hey, Jesus hasn't simply given us just the raw materials and left it to chance. He is leaving specific instructions about how he wants his body, the church, to be. And that's what we're looking at today. And he gives us just these three very clear instructions about how to build up the body. Starts out with unity. We need to prioritize unity. Uh, That's like right out of the gate where he goes. Need to make unity the most important thing in your life. Prioritize it. Make it central. And once we're united, once we see what Jesus did on the cross, we can then have a goal. We're headed towards something, and we're headed there together, and that's maturity. So first we prioritize unity, and then we pursue maturity, and there's a foundation for all this. It's built on Scripture. So we're doing these things being shaped by God's Word. And as we do this, as we have unity and maturity coming together, what Paul says in verse 16 happens. The church will be built up in love. So let's first look at that. Let's unpack that. How, how does Paul want us to prioritize unity? Well, look with me again uh, at verses 1 and 2. This is what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let's just stop there for just a second. There's a therefore here. Paul's saying this. Look, everything that's come before now is leading to this. 
This is the, so we've talked about all these blessings. The book opens up, chapters one through three is all about what Jesus has done for us. He opens the book by saying, blessed is the God and Father who has blessed us. This book is all about what does it mean to be blessed. It talks about how we were dead in sin and now we've been made alive. Made alive, raised and seated with Christ and now we're trophies of his grace. What's the point of knowing that? Is that just like, hey, here's some cool facts about what's happened. No, he's saying, therefore, as a result of all that's come before, as a result of all the blessings that God has just poured out on you, you are up to your eyeballs in grace. And he's saying, I'm not just sharing that information with you. I'm not just like giving you, hey, here's some cool facts. Isn't that a fun trivia? Look at what Jesus did. He's saying this, look, you need to rearrange your life based on the gospel. There's a therefore here. This isn't just like, oh, look at that, cool. He's saying, let this infiltrate your life. He's getting up in our business. He's getting up in our space. He's saying there are implications of the gospel. You don't just need to know this. It needs to start transforming you. And listen, this this is the first place in the book of Ephesians that Paul gives a command. The very first place. And what is that first command he gives? Think about how important that is. He's saying, hey, Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done. Now what do you do? What's the very first thing that a Christian should, should be invested in? That, that what's the very first thing we need to rearrange because of Jesus' victory? What does he say? He, he talks about this in verses 2. He says, look, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, walk worthy of your calling. That's the what. What does that mean? Do it like this, unity. The very first command, right out of the gate, Paul wants you to know, now as a result, as a fruit of what Jesus has done, unity is the most important thing. It's the first command. He's saying, make that the most important thing in your life. It's not a list of behaviors he's going through. He's saying, prioritize unity. Well, what is unity? Like, uh, I think a lot of us have all these ideas about what it means to be united with other people. Uh, and for some of us, it's not like a real unity. It's like, hey, let's just talk about how we get along. Let's not focus on ways we don't get along. And that will be unity. We'll be united. Well, that's not the idea that Paul has in mind when he talks about unity. He actually kind of gives us seven fence posts to know uh, that we have unity, where we can find unity, and what unity is built on. Uh, and that's found in verses um, 5 and 6. There's these seven things. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, seven is a really significant number. It's the number of completion. He's saying, look, this is all you need for unity. What do you need for unity? Uh, well, we have it. Or start, starting verse 4, excuse me. There's one body, that's one number one, one spirit, just as you've been called to one hope, There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. These are the things that if we are not united on here, we don't have true unity. So just for example, like this week as I was prepping this sermon, I got a knock on my door. And I saw, based on the two old ladies with iPads, I knew exactly who was knocking on my door. I won't say what religion they belonged to, but they were trying to get me to join the club. And so I went out, and we started talking, and they were super nice. We started chit-chatting, and they were like, hey, we're here. We love the Bible. I was like, cool, I love the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible. 
And um, so they open up the Bible, they start sharing with me all these things. And I was like, hey, this is like super interesting, really cool. Can I just ask you a question? Like, yeah. Do you believe Jesus is God? And they were like, no, 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 no. Can I tell you? And then they started going off on all these tirades about how Jesus isn't God. And at which point I was like, look, like you, you guys are so nice. Like you are really like genuine, warm, kind people. And I believe we can be good neighbors together. I think we can live for the good of the city together. I think we can be friends. I think we can like walk alongside each other in certain common goals. But we don't have unity. We're on different teams here. Like what Paul is saying, Paul goes to great, there's an in Christ what Paul's been talking about. We, the body, are in Christ. If there's an in Christ, that also implies there's an outside of Christ. And Paul's saying this, like, how do you know what our unity is based on? He gives us these seven things. If we're not united on these seven things, there's not real unity. Doesn't mean we have to be mean. Doesn't mean we have to be, like, uncordial. Doesn't mean, like, we need to go around wagging our fingers. But he's saying, like, look, there's just this union that Jesus has made possible. He's saying, look, Jesus wants to unite all things under himself. And here, here are these seven things that Paul lays out that is the basis for our unity. And also, he kind of like does this odd thing. So seven is an odd number, right? So that means in, in how you do Greek literature, uh, if you have three things on one side and three things on the other side, the thing that's in the middle is the most important. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's the basis of our unity, these seven things. And what's at the heart? What's at the heart of our unity? What is it? Of those seven ones, which one is the central one? One Lord. Here's what he's saying. Unity starts with Jesus. The heart of our faith is our Lord. He, that, that's where we start. Look, there, there are, I know, and I'm, I rejoice in this, there are Democrats, there are Republicans, there are people who have all different types of backgrounds and different types of perspectives in this room. And that's a beautiful and lovely and wonderful thing. Why? Because our unity is not based on how we look at the world like that. Those things are important. They're not unimportant, okay? But that's not what our basis, the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity is not a thing. It's not a party. It's a person. We have been united and we are united around Jesus. He is the heart of our unity. We have one Lord. Look, when people gather together, whenever sinful people just congregate, Conflict is inevitable, okay? Like, I mean, just that's what happens when sinful people get together. Here's what Paul is helping them see, though. Like, at our bedrock, who we are, we are united or under the same person, Jesus. That's the heart of our unity. And then he wants to help us work our way out a little bit. So we have the same Lord. Not only do we have the same Lord, we have the same hope and the same faith. So hope... What, what's the hope of the Christian faith? That the world is broken, but God didn't abandon it. He is coming back to make all things right. He's made us heirs of the kingdom of God. We have a future and a hope, and it's the same one. If Jesus is your Lord, you may disagree on all different types of things, but you're headed to the same end. Our stories have been united, and we're walking toward the same goal. That's real unity. That's, I mean, look, you can like cover up like our disagreements under the rug, but this is saying, hey, the truest thing about all of us is we're going to the same place. We have the same hope. That's one hope, one faith. When we think about faith, uh, kind of like in our American mindset of faith, faith is this idea of like, oh yeah, I just believe this is going to happen and I hope it's true. 
That's not a biblical understanding of faith, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. When Paul talks about faith, we have one faith, he's talking about really trust. We trust the same person. We, we've given him our allegiance. So our unity is not just based on a person, but it's based on also that we're, we have trusted him. We're headed in the same direction. And then he talks about, he moves out again from the center. Is one spirit. Uh, and also, there's just one spirit, and there is one baptism. Uh, when Paul uses the word baptism, most oftentimes he's not necessarily talking about physically being dunked underwater, but he's talking about being baptized into the spirit. So he's saying, look, there's the same Holy Spirit, that same guarantee that, so you've been sealed, you've been safe, you're secured by God, God dwells in you, you're now a temple, and you've been totally immersed in that. There's someone that you don't agree with about like, should, should we have donut holes or should we have donuts? You are immersed in the same spirit, you are baptized into him, you are just dunked into that spirit. That's more important than any other conflict you can have as a body. And then it moves out again, we are, we're the same body. We can't be headed in different directions because we're the same body with the same God over us. And so that, that's what our unity is. And that's all fruit of the gospel. That all comes about because of what Jesus has done. Paul sums this up in Ephesians 1.10. He says this, He has united all things to himself. This is why you need to make unity a priority. This is why you need to make it super important to yourself. We are the body of Jesus. We're really closely uh, identified with Jesus. We are so connected to him. What you do communicates who he is. Think about Saul uh, on the road to Damascus. He sees Jesus and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I was like, what? I don't know who you are. Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting his people. And they're so closely identified, that's like persecuting Jesus. And so if we're saying that Jesus won, sin fractures everything. It it alienates us from God, alienates us from one another, but Jesus is reconciling that. He's bringing and uniting all that back together. And we can't get along. We're communicating something about Jesus. We're saying he didn't really win. We're also saying other things are more important than what he has said is important. Look, so that's, that's what unity is, and it flows right out of the gospel. And then he tells us how we're supposed to do this. With humility, with gentleness, being quick to guard unity. Think about that phrase, being quick to guard unity. Paul doesn't say, be quick to create unity. He's saying, be quick to guard it. It's already there. We are already united with each other because of the work Jesus has done. We need to protect that. Look, conflict is inevitable. You get people together. I mean, we are just going to see things differently. We are going to be at war with our desires with each other. But we need to have a posture of guarding unity. Do you think, have, think about someone who has like, they're just quick to tell you they know everything. They're just like a know-it-all. Anybody have a know-it-all in their life? Know-it-all is like, you know, you're like, oh, hey, I saw this movie. Like, well, did you see this movie? Did you know this about that? Did you know this about that? That's a posture that person has. Paul's saying the posture for believers, what we should be just natural reflexes, what we should be quick to do is guard unity. That should be our reflex. And, and what, with humility and with gentleness. Why can we do that? Because everything's been taken care of in the gospel. That's reset our priorities. And so the gospel not only creates this unity, it brings us together as a body, but it also sends us toward a common goal. And that common goal is maturity. 
So we have been united together, and then we have also been given a goal. That's maturity. Look with me at verses 7 through 14. Um, Starting in verse 7, he says this, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, before we just, like, keep unpacking this idea of the goal of maturity and where maturity, how we should pursue that together, I just need to, like, just, like, be candid about my own journey with maturity. So, like, I have, like, ugh, just, like, balked at this idea of maturity sometimes, right? Like, I have this idea of what it means to be a mature person or a mature person, like, however you say it, um, as just, like, you're just kind of a fuddy-duddy. Like, there's just no fun to be had by you because you're mature. You're grown up. That's what it means to be mature. You don't have any problems. You've solved that. You're mature. (laughs) No! Uh, I take back that amen. Um, And so, that's not what Paul is describing here. Uh, There's a comedian who describes, uh, this comedian's in his 60s, and he has a friend who's in his 60s, and they were describing that friend, and they said, like, yeah, like, we're all the same age, but he's, like, a really old guy. Like, he has, like, the Velcro shoes, and he just, like, kind of hunched over, and he's getting, like, you know, the soups at buffets. And, like, they said this, like, why does he act like that? Did someone tell him, like, hey, this is how old people act, and you just need to do that? And so, like, if, if you hear, like, oh, be mature, that can, like, shape, okay, this is, this is what it means to be mature, and I'm headed in that direction. Well, Paul, Paul does not want you to, like, that's not what he has in mind with maturity here. And, like, there's this old adage, right? Uh, uh, churches all across this country say this. If you know it, help me finish this, okay? It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay there, okay? That's a, that's a thing, all right? People say that. Uh, maybe they don't say it in the Midwest. I don't know. All right, but like, you need to know that's totally true. When we talk about maturity, when we say, like, here's the goal, we all want to mature, that can, like, if you're not careful, like, in our own sinful, broken flesh, that can, like, leave out a ton of people. They're like, well, I'm not mature. This is, like, a really serious group. Like, they, like, really know things. Oh, man, I'm out. That's not what Paul is talking about. He really wants you to know it is okay to not be okay. This is not a gathering of people who have it all together. Okay? If it is, I'm out. Like, I don't have it all together. What Paul is saying is this, though. It's not okay to stay there. Like, we want you to come as you are. And we want to help you walk toward maturity and wholeness. And that's, that's life-giving. It comes from grace. Look at verse 7. It says this, But grace was given to each of us. Maturity, that goal that we're headed toward, is a gift of grace. If you don't believe me, we're going to unpack the weirdest verses in Ephesians, okay? Here we go. This is verse 8 through 10. Listen, it's really confusing, but hopefully after we unpack it, you'll have a little better grip on it. Here's what it says. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who also, he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. What in the world is all this up and down, ascended, descended? What's he talking about? Okay, verse 8 is the key to unpacking this whole statement. Here's what it says, verse 8. When he ascended on high, he held a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In ancient times, both in Israel and in Rome, uh, if you were a king and you went to battle and you won that battle, 
you would come back to your city and you would have like all the officials and the, like, the rich people, the king, the queen, their family, like the, the senate. You'd have all those people in handcuffs being paraded through your city. And then you would have pillaged that city. And so you start giving, throwing money out to people. It's like an old home day, but instead of getting Tootsie Rolls, you get cash. Like th- this was a common practice. People did this. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying happens in the church. Jesus won a battle. He defeated Satan and his hosts. He's captivated them. He's headed and he's giving gifts to his people. Well, what are those gifts? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifting is a a work of grace. It's saying that, hey, like God has won a battle and he's giving you a gift and he's he's showing, hey, this, this is a sign of my victory. This, this gift toward you is a work of grace. It comes to you by grace. It's not for you to build a monument to yourself. It's not to say, look, I have the gift of teaching. Look how much I know about the Bible. I have the gift of service. Isn't it so great that I went at 2 a.m. to help someone pour water out of their basement? Man, I'm really awesome. He's saying he's given you these gifts to show that he won and that he's ascended on high and filling us with all things. Well, what's the point of spiritual gifts? Well, he's going to talk about some of, some of the specific gifts that he has in mind here. Uh, and that's in verse 11. He says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So those are the people who are supposed to unpack God's word for us. So I'm not saying that I am God's gift to you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that people have been superly nat- supernaturally gifted to open up scripture and to explain it to people. Why? Why? So they can showboat? So they can build a monument to themselves? Nope. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul is saying this. We have been given a goal to be equipped. And and he's provided everything we need for that goal in the gospel. And now we need to walk worthy. When you say things like walk worthy... Like, that can really be quickly misunderstood. It's like, hey, God's given you this amazing gift. Now walk worthy of that. Like, earn it back is what it sounds like Paul's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, here's a reality that God has won in the gospel. And then when he says walk worthy, he means walk consistently with that. Like, that's what maturity is at its heart. It's saying like, hey, this thing has happened to me. And now my life reflects that. I really live like this really is true. Like keep going with me. Uh, In verse 13, he's been given these people to equip others until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's the goal. We're united as a body. That's where we're headed. And he says this, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what's maturity? Well, verse 14 kind of starts to unpack what maturity isn't. Paul's saying, hey, walk this way. Jesus has done something. He's rescued you. Let that rearrange your life. Don't be like someone who's not walking that way and they're just, it's all passive. They're being blown around. They get new information that totally takes them this way. And they get other information that totally takes them this way. Paul's not saying don't be open-minded. Don't listen to, to, you know, other opinions. He's not saying that. What Paul's saying is this, though. Mature living, 
Headed toward growth is whole living. And that, that's what that word means. Mature has this idea of wholeness. So like a fractured person, if your life is fractured, on the one hand, you say, oh, I totally believe that Jesus is Lord. He's rescued me. I, we're good to go. And on the other hand, you're like greedy. You're like, yeah, Jesus is Lord. He's taking care of all my needs, but I got to protect myself. I got to just hoard all this money. That's a fractured life. What Paul is saying maturity is, is that you bring those two things together. What Jesus has done impacts how you live. Whole living. That, that's just a consistent. You're walking worthy of the calling. Not you're earning it back, but it really has started to rearrange the furniture of your life. And that idea of being equipped that Paul talks about. That he's given these people to equip us. What does that idea mean? What does it mean to be equipped? Well, it originally means it's this idea of setting of a bone. So I've never broken anything, but I can imagine it doesn't tickle. I can also imagine setting the bone back doesn't tickle. And so sometimes being equipped can be painful. Sometimes when we go from immaturity to maturity, that doesn't always feel good. Like, as a church, what it means to, for, for us as preachers of the word to equip you means that sometimes you need to come to church ready to be confronted. You need to say, hey, you say you believe this. What about this over here? As uh, the famous G.K. Chesterton once said, and this I think just gives us a lot of wisdom. Here's what he said. We do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. They're saying we don't want a religion that's correct where we're already correct. We want, what we want is a religion that is right when we are wrong. We do not want a religion that is right where we are right. What we want is a religion that is right where we are wrong. That's what it means to open up God's word with you. It means we're looking at it and seeing areas for growth. It means we're looking at it together and seeing like how are we fractured. Like, how, how have I been broken by sin? See, like, maturity is not knowledge. Some of you in this room, you know a lot. You know a lot about the Bible. For you, the Bible is like the coolest puzzle ever, and you've been putting it together for several winters. That does not mean you are mature. For many of you, you have been involved in a spectator sport. You have been watching the work of the ministry. You have not been seeing your responsibility to be equipped to then carry out that work of the ministry. Look, I should be working myself out of a job. That's what this passage says. It's, we, the, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Okay? Like, around college playoffs, uh, ESPN always does this thing where they'll take people who've been tweeting about games— and so like, if somebody missed like a really big play, so let's say like, someone was going to kick a field goal and they miss it, uh, they'll find people who tweeted, oh my goodness, I can't believe you missed that field goal. I could have totally made it. And what they'll do is they'll fly those people to ESPN and they'll take a field goal and they'll be like, they don't know what they're doing. And they're like, hey, you said you could make this. Here's a 46-yard field goal. Go for it. You know what? They've showed a lot of these clips, and obviously maybe somebody's made one, but none of the ones they've showed anyone has made them. They don't even really get the ball off the ground. For some of you, that's been your faith. 
You've just been sitting back saying like, man, this isn't how I would do things. Man, I don't really care for this. I don't really like this. And yet you haven't been doing anything. Here's what Paul is lovingly setting the bone back into place. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You, just because you know a lot about the Bible doesn't mean you're mature. Are you letting that scripture rearrange your life? Rearrange your priorities? Are you letting that move you and push you toward wholeness? Or is that somebody else's job? Look, I mean, I've, if you read the New Testament, you're not going to find any passage in there about like the spiritual gift of donuts, the spiritual gift of sweeping the, the floor. You're, you're not going to find those things. The ministry that Paul has in mind here is, I, I can't say it better than uh, the famous missionary to, to Pakistan, Zane Pratt, uh, once said. He said, ministry is when you're just pursuing God, and that's the byproduct of what happens. Ministry is the byproduct of a life that's chasing after God. And, and, and here's what it looks like as what Paul is talking about. Ministry is relationships. And we need to be equipping you to feel like you can step into spaces with people. Think about the people that are in your life. Think about the, think about the people who've experienced brokenness. Not you, of course, the people around you. God has supernaturally provided for that person a new creation a new humanity. Somebody who was dead, has been made alive, is seated up there with Jesus, trophy of, of Jesus' grace, and he's put that person in the life of a broken person. And then you say, oh man, I, I gotta call somebody else to do this. We gotta get the professionals in here. That's antithetical to what Paul is pushing us toward in this passage. We need to be equipped to walk with one another. Like, he didn't leave this to chance. He's not unclear about this. As a body, if you really want to flourish, if you really want to know what it means to be alive, you need to invest in a body. Like, we're not building monuments for ourselves. Some of you are really mature. Some of you are really gifted. But that's not the point. The point, then, is to join a body. And that's what Paul unpacks in verse 16. He says, look, from the, the whole body is joined and held together uh, by every joint which is equipped. Okay, so mature people join a body, get together, and then what happens? Uh, when it's working properly, it makes the body grow, building itself up in love. We need unity to make this happen. We need maturity and when we combine those two things, it just results in the growth of the body, in the health and, and care for the body of Jesus. Jesus cares about his body. And if you really want to flourish, you have to too. He has, he has so rigged the game that if you don't care about other people, you will never understand what it means to be really alive. What it really means to flourish. You need other people to flourish. That's the point. That's the goal we're headed towards. Well, how on earth do we get there? What in the world does that look like? Well, even at this point, he's provided He's provided his word. We get there by being shaped by scripture. And that's verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. 
Rather, what's the rather? So instead of being like blown around, being immature, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, we need to unpack this idea of speaking the truth in love. For many of you, what it looks like to speak the truth in love, you've heard, maybe you've heard this, this is what people talk about. So someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, your life is a mess. You're just totally out of control. You're a dumpster fire. I love you. I don't know, I, I don't know if you've ever done that, but that, that is not what Paul has in mind here when he talks about speaking the truth in love. Paul didn't just pull this idea of speaking the truth in love out of thin air. It's actually a, a, a very like layered Old Testament idea. Uh, it's ta- it started in the book of Deuteronomy. Isaiah picks it up and plays with it. And then Zechariah picks it up. And so what, here's what Zechariah 8.16 helps unpack this idea of what it means to speak the truth in love. Isaiah, the prophet, talks about a day that is coming when Yahweh will be exalted Uh, His people will come to him, and then it says this, he will write his law, his instruction, on their heart. And then Zechariah starts quoting that, and he picks it up, and this is Zechariah 8.16. This is what he says. Uh, These are the things that you shall do. So he's saying, like, when that happens, when God's instruction is written on your heart, here's what you're going to do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So here's what Paul is picking up on this Old Testament idea. What it means to speak the truth in love is not like saying harsh things and then like just tacking I love you onto it. What it means to speak the truth in love is to live in congruence. Live being shaped by and in, con- in consistency with Scripture. That God has spoken and when we speak the truth... That's something that's gone into us, and it's coming out. We are, being sh- we are people who are being shaped by his word. So like this whole idea of unity and this whole idea of maturity, that's been given of like who we are and what we need to do. How do we do it? We need to be shaped by his word. God word God's word cultivates maturity. Like we no longer have to be immature. Uh, we can know his word and, do, and speak his word. It's shaping us and it's just coming out. And we do that together. In, and what is, well, how do we do it? In love. None of this works without love. Paul goes on later to say, like, if I know everything, if I have all the answers, uh, but don't have love, I am a clanging symbol. Useless. None of this works without love. Being shaped by scripture and not, again, not knowledge, not just the facts. God is not after just you to know the facts. This is about your heart. This is about who you are, what makes you, you. Scripture should be shaping and informing that, your desires, your wants. And when we are people like that, we reach out in love. Part of the way you know that you've really had an encounter with God's word and you know it and you understand it is it produces love. If you're just arrogant, you've not really encountered God's word. Without love, this whole thing doesn't 
work. The body won't be built up. And all we'll do is make little monuments to ourselves. Paul's saying this, like, if you want to flourish, you've got to focus on others. Uh, if you really want to be alive, you need to commit yourself to the health, to the building up of a body. And he's told us how to do that and what it looks like. But that all sounds like really big picture. How do we bring that down to like where we live? To Tuesday mornings? To like riding you know, kids all around town to soccer practice? How do we actually really live for the flourishing and help and well-being of others? Well, he's told us in uh, verses 1 and 2, and I just kind of want to unpack that and give some practical, a practical application of this. So he says this, to um, walk in a manner worthy of your calling... How? How do we do this? With humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Humility. Why in the world can we be humble? We can be humble because we, ha- we worship a God who's truly great who's truly great, and he was willing to lay that aside, greatness, and take on the form of a servant. That's humility that's shaped and informed by the gospel. Uh, This whole idea of gentleness, if you're the type of person that crosses things out in your Bible, cross out the word gentleness and write self-forgetfulness. Paul says this, the fruit of the gospel is self-forgetfulness. Look, we, we just naturally care about ourselves, about self-preservation. I got to worry about me because who else will? Here's what Paul is saying. You can forget about yourself. Like, not, not that sounded like really harsh. You don't have to worry about yourself. Someone who loves you and cares for you more than you could has taken care of everything. And he's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Relax. He's got you. He is taking care of you. You don't need to rig the game to help yourself. He has taken care of you. This idea of bearing with one another, it literally says holding each other up. And, and that idea of holding each other up, uh, it's used in a lot of like Greek literature to talk about hearing complaints. If there's one thing I love, it's listening to complaints. I just naturally, like people just bring complaints to me, I can be like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, what are you going to do about that? But here's this, that's where I'm inconsistent with this. Bearing with one another in love. Like empathy, caring for that person and holding up their complaints. Why? Because we have been taken care of, we've been showered, we've been loved. We're free to do this. So how can we cultivate this in our lives? I'll just give you one simple way to cultivate those attitudes that will help us prioritize humility and pursue maturity. How do we do this? It's really simple. You can do it today. You can practice it. Just this. How do you cultivate humility? Learn to laugh at yourself. The inability to laugh at yourself is a sign that you don't get it. Like, you are, it's still that you're not, you're not doing self-forgetfulness. You're worried about your image, and you need, you just can't laugh at yourself. And so I will give you an example from my own life of an area where I did not want to laugh at myself. Amy and I were driving on the 101, and if anybody knows what the 101 is, 
It's a freeway that goes right, cuts right through LA, goes through Hollywood, heads to the beach. Uh, and at some points, it's six lanes wide. It's total chaos. It's insane. And so we're driving on the 101. And as we're driving, I start to hear that we're in the far left lane. And I start to hear this noise. And you know, I'm not the handiest guy out there. And Amy, if, if, if you know Amy, she's so gentle. She's really patient. She's like, hey, what do you, what do you think that noise is? I was like, oh, I think it's a helicopter. <laughs> I'm being dead serious. And so Amy gently replies back, a helicopter, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. Couple of miles later, it didn't stop. It just kept going with us. And she's like, that, that helicopter's still hovering above us. <laughs> yeah, okay, I mean, probably they're chasing someone. I don't know. I don't, I'm not the LAPD. What, what do I know, right? Boosh, and then was the next noise we heard. And again, keep in mind, we're in the far left lane. And if you've ever been on the 101, I mean, that's really dangerous, okay? And so, like, I've got us into this dangerous situation, which I now am... Uh, I get the joke now, and... And I, I, okay, I get us to the breakdown lane, we pull over, and Amy just like very gently like, that's a weird helicopter. <laughs> I did not like telling that story for a very long time. Why? Because I was immature. That's, that said something about me, right? Like, I don't know what's up. Oh man, like I don't have it together. I think I know everything and I really don't. As Jesus has grown me and as I, by his grace, have matured, I now see, oh my gosh, how ridiculous I was. The inability to laugh at yourself is proof positive you need to meditate on the gospel. You need to understand you actually are way more messed up than you could have thought. But again, it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to help build this body. That we would be a people who go out of our way to prioritize unity. That we would be a people who together, by grace, pursue maturity. And that by doing that, we would be shaped by your word. And that we, as a body, would be built up for the work of ministry. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.